welcome to episode eight of the Precious Snowflakes podcast. Today is May 7th, 2017, and it's been, what has it been, a couple of weeks since our last podcast? It's been a couple of weeks. Well, I'm Lelius Rose. And I'm Ben Phelps. And we are back. We are back. And <laughs> In the month your... of May, we have, uh, we've been hither and yon. <laughs> yeah, we are your precious snowflakes. Yes, we are. Uh, yeah, we've had, we've had some delays. Uh, one of them is that we were gone for the, uh, Cascade Liberty Summit slash Washington State Libertarian Convention, uh, in Moses Lake. And we were going to do some sort of, uh, review podcast or live cast of some kind from there. Uh, however, we ran into an interesting problem. Uh, and that problem is libertarians, libertarians. That problem is quorum <laughs> that the libertarian party rules. Wait a minute, quorum. I thought we're not Mormons, right? We're libertarian. <laughs> right. So for so those who don't know, a tw- 12 is not enough. Apparently when you're a libertarian, for those who don't know, a quorum requirement is how, what is the minimum number of people you need at a business meeting of an organization in order to formally conduct the business, meaning elections, rules changes, resolutions, anything like that. And the rules of the Libertarian Party of Washington State were written at a time when the party was significantly smaller. Therefore, the quorum requirement is way higher than it is for other parties. Uh, it's 10% of all members of the state party must be present and voting in order to conduct business. And in a in an election year where Libertarian Party membership exploded, uh, but the number of people signing up for the state convention was relatively unchanged, that turned into a problem. So we ended up having a lot of excellent speeches, uh, but we postponed all of the business until a second meeting, which will happen in the first week in July. And as a consequence, uh, we're not going to, we're just not going to talk about that until the actual business has occurred. There's new party leadership. uh, Because the speeches that we heard, while great, from people like Larry Sharp, who's hopefully a libertarian candidate for governor of New York. There's something about Larry. There is something about Larry. And uh, Karen Ann Harlos, who is um, the representative of Washington State, among other states, to the Libertarian National Committee. I think we'll be hearing basically those exact speeches again, because they're hmm. both coming back. They were actually um, both, uh, or Karen Ann was, was just coming, They it was up in um, Alaska, I think, at their convention, which I guess they had. Yeah. There, were, there were a bunch of state conventions going on. I know the Ohio one. Well, tis the season. It's officially been long enough since the election that every political party is at their point of rebuilding. For some political parties, that means a serious, introspective look at how they did, what they accomplished, and what they failed to accomplish. For other political parties, it means blaming everyone but themselves for their own failures. <clears throat> so, for, so for our regular listener who you know, has listened to us for uh, whoever our regular listener is for a few episodes now you've probably you know sort of picked up on the the libertarian you know quote unquote libertarian small l big l whatever you want to call it uh, theme of our mutual you know ideology whatever you want to call it (laughs) outlook and one of the things you might be wondering dear listener is what is this what what is 
what does it mean to be a libertarian and what is the quote unquote libertarian party? Do you have the statement of principles? I could read it. Do you want to read this? <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things we will say this, one of the things that was really uh, wonderful and illuminating that Karen Ann uh, told us about in her speech is she talked about the, the whole process behind the creation of the libertarian party's statement of principles. This is, you know, this three paragraph long little thing that, Every platform plank, every major resolution, everything that comes from the National Party is supposed to have its root or its heart in this statement of principles, which was written in, you know, 1972. I was ratified in 1972 and then amended for the first and only time uh, in the following convention, 1974. Uh, and it was written by Dr. John Hospers, uh, who was the first libertarian presidential candidate. Uh, also the chair of the philosophy department at, I want to say, USC, maybe. Um, and uh, the only libertarian presidential candidate actually so far, unfortunately, to receive an electoral college vote. Hmm. <coughs> uh, Lel, would you like to... Well, actually, uh, Ron Paul, technically, but he wasn't a, can a declared candidate. He, re he received one last year. That's true. He was... Well, and he, w he ran as the libertarian candidate in 1980, and then he received one electoral college vote in this election. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty big gap, time-wise. But the question, I mean, if you're wondering what the libertarian party <laughs> is all about, I mean, there's so many different people with different ideologies who, call, who describe themselves as libertarians. You know, everyone from someone like Ron Paul to who's 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 been elected to office as a Republican to, you know, wackos like Milo Yiannopoulos, as I as I whack my microphone, as I say that uh, <laughs> well, and for who, who, who uses that word, but it has a lot of very not so libertarian types of ideas uh, <laughs> for a little bit of clarification. Lel and I are both big L libertarians. We're both members of the Libertarian Party. Lel is actually a lifetime member. Ooh, you just outed me. I know. Lel is a <laughs> Lel is a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party. Uh, I am merely a sustaining member, but I'm also currently, until the state convention actually conducts its business, I am the reg the elected regional director of the Libertarian Party for King and Stomish counties. We are also both. Uh, registered Democrats mm -hmm. or paying well, Democrats. Well, we can't, we don't There's no have registration. partisan registration, but yeah. I, I have registered as a, in California when they had partisan registration, I registered as a Democrat. I've certainly supported mostly Democratic candidates, especially for national office. Yeah. Uh, for the most part. Although, I, I mean, I, I'm certainly open-minded uh, <laughs> to to different ideas. I'm not a hardcore partisan, but the reason I, I became a member of the Libertarian Party isn't necessarily because I believe 100% in everything that's in their platform, although the, the majority of it I, I mostly agree with. But in general, I think these days, the, both the Republicans and the Democrats have become increasingly authoritarian and, and less and less interested in, in uh, defending the Constitution and more in you know, just defending their own primarily corporate <laughs> and money interests. Yeah. And just in the, in the most broad, you know, sense possible, I think that libertarian ideas just need to be, to have more influence in our, in our society. Right. Well, and they need to be, they need to be out there in the conversation without stigma. 
if the if the ideas of the Libertarian Party, the policy preferences of the Libertarian Party, were able to get real public discourse without the stigma of you're a bunch of third party wackos, mm-hmm. then they could they could really turn some heads. Let's let's do the statement of principles. Okay, so I think let's that's talk really about telling. so the statement of principles was uh you know basically it's the it's 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 the essentially the uh, the preamble of the to the it's the equivalent of like the preamble to the Constitution. It's where the Libertarian Party is ba- stating in essence what they're about. And the interesting thing about the um, the statement of principles is that uh, once it was ratified, it's they made it they deliberately made it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to change. To change. So they they this is what does it require like seven eighths of all the right, of seven all the members of the all members must must be there in order to change it. And and as someone mentioned at our non convention, as it were, <laughs> getting just getting seven eighths of all the the attendees of the convention in the room at the same time <laughs> it's almost impossible. Let alone oh, yeah. getting them all to agree. But anyway, I will um I will read the preamble as soon as I'm done burping here. Ooh, I think the statement of principles is what's directly yes. after the preamble. Yeah, and I'm not going to read the preamble. There's a preamble to the statement of principles, but the statement of principles, <coughs> excuse me, reads, We, the members of the Libertarian Party, challenge the cult of the omnipotent state and defend the rights of the individual. We hold that all individuals have the right to exercise sole dominion over their own lives and have the right to live in whatever manner they choose, so long as they do not forcibly interfere with the equal right of others to live in whatever manner they choose. Governments throughout history have regularly operated on the opposite principle, that the state has the right to dispose of the lives of individuals and the fruits of their labor. Even within the United States, all political parties, other than our own grant to government, the right to regulate the lives of individuals and seize the fruits of their labor without their consent. We, on the contrary, deny the right of any government to do these things and hold that where governments exist, they must not violate the rights of any individual, namely, one, the right to life, Accordingly, we support the prohibition of the initiation of physical force against others. Two, the right to liberty of speech and action. Accordingly, we oppose all attempts by government to abridge the freedom of speech and press, as well as government censorship in any form. And three, the right to property. Accordingly, we oppose all government interference with private property, such as confiscation, nationalization, and eminent domain, and support the prohibition of robbery, trespass, fraud, and misrepresentation. Since governments, when instituted, must not violate individual rights, we oppose all interference by government in the areas of voluntary and contractual relations among individuals. People should not be forced to sacrifice their lives and property for the benefit of others. They should be left free by government to deal with one another as free traders. And the resultant economic system, the only one compatible with the protection of individual rights, is the free market. There you go. (laughs) So it sounds pretty hardcore. (laughs) 
I mean, that's a very it's a very idealistic position, and it and, is. And some might consider that okay, that's mm, that that's kind of pie in the sky, you know. Or you know, the the free market solves everything, you know. <laughs> well, one of the yeah, and and I'm I'm sure a lot of both my liberal and conservative you know friends or listener would roll their eyes at that a little bit and say that's kind of Pollyannish that the the free market is is the answer to all of society's problems but i think you you have to look at it in the the as you know it's it's a it's, well, it's a it's a statement of principles it's not necessarily the the, the answer to everything well and, you know people have their own personal principles and mm-hmm. their own political and ethical principles most people do not live their own principles mm-hmm. some of that uh some of that through inaction or you know denial or whatever a lot of it through intentional choice that people will choose to to compromise uh while still believing in a in a given principle well and to me i mean the statement of principles what it would it i mean if you if you don't focus on any necessarily any one thing what it's what it's really about is the right of human beings to self-determination that's to me what it's all about it's like it's not that government is necessarily evil or terrible or you know designed to you know take away your rights it's about you know the just remembering you know what what is what the point of government is it's not to run your life or to you know fix all your problems it's to it's it's to you know it has it I, it has certain uses and some people would say that it doesn't have any use at all but it's really all about People having the freedom to make up their own minds how they want to live their life without, you know. Well, one of the... Without coercion or violence or... <laughs> all those other it. nasty things that cause wars and <laughs> problems. And one of the... You know, one of the things that we talked about at the time uh, at the convention that Karen Ann said and that you said was that this really is... It really is radical. It is revolutionary. <laughs> it's... It is a very intense document, this statement of principles. Uh, And there's a lot there. There's a lot to sort of see. If you just if you just read it at face value and if you say to yourself, well, this is what the libertarians want, period, (laughs) then then like, yeah, it can be really off putting. But if you take it as, you know, as as what I think is intended as a radical statement of principles that guides the policy preferences of the party, you know, that doesn't determine them a hundred percent, but that guides where we're moving. Um, then there's a lot there to unpack that is really interesting. Mm. Like I, I love the, the phrase, the cult of the omnipotent state, <laughs> yes. because what the, what's one well, of the things that is, that makes the libertarian party different from both the democratic and republican parties is this belief that government is not all good or all powerful that that government not only should not be the solution to all our problems but simply can't be the solution to all our problems government can't do everything there are things that have to just be done through the goodwill of individuals, through collective voluntary agreements. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much now uh, that we just, we take for granted our free market things that the government could not possibly have ever done. Like the, the current rise of the social media world, 
like the incredible advances in aerospace technology from the last eight years, thanks to companies like SpaceX, you know, government can't solve every problem and, and nor should it try, you know, we can let people live their own lives and we all benefit from that. Just acknowledge, like if you start any conversation about government with the acknowledgement and acceptance of the fact that government cannot be all good and all powerful, that government cannot solve every problem. And you really keep that in mind. You end up, you know, with policies that are better, that are freer, more efficient. Well, and that the people who are in government should have a little bit of humility yeah. about their limitations of what they're able to right, do. Right, that they can't control everything and they shouldn't try I mean, to. there's so many examples of, you know, there's a problem pops up and immediately... There are certain politicians you can just count on to get on their on their high horse and start grandstanding and holding hearings and proposing laws that we should pass to, I mean, solve this pro. Uh, this week, just this past week, a, a good example of this is all the videos about you know you know people getting kicked off of airplanes and general yeah. you know people's you know being pissed off at airlines. It's like sure, yes, there's you know there's thousands and if not you know, hundreds of thousands of people fly every day, and yeah, sometimes the airlines fuck up, right? I mean they, <laughs> there there are there are failures, and you know just like any other occupation, not everyone who works for the airlines graduated at the top of their class, and sometimes they make mistakes, sometimes there are breakdowns, but it doesn't necessarily just every viral video is not necessarily evidence that we need to go in and pass a, a sweeping right. law like doing su such as banning overbooking or you know your requirements about you know who can sit where and when you can get on and off the plane a lot of these ideas are a just politicians being opportunistic and looking for ways for to get publicity <laughs> and B, you know, have can a lot of the time have unintended consequences. And at the end can end up hurting the consumer by making it more expensive and taking away their flexibility or choices. One and that's something we need to consider <laughs> when we're demanding that our politicians take answer to, you know, take, take, take action to quote unquote fix whatever, you know, we, we, we discussed, have. we discussed the airlines an episode or two ago. And one of the things we talked about is like, by the time the politicians started riling up, they're like, what are we going to do to <laughs> fix this? A lot of the individual problems that have been highlighted by the first round were already getting resolved. Thanks to public outcry. Well, sure. Like government didn't need to step in to change things when it's a customer service problem in a world where everyone can read reviews online for everything, you don't need government to solve the problem. Sometimes just by pub by allowing the public to see the information, the problem can more or less resolve itself. Well, and then it, he also begs the questions like, where were you guys when all these airlines were consolidating and merging with one another yeah. and, and creating these, 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 these mega airlines that like, that are like the big banks that have all consolidated that are not just too big to fail, but too big to give a shit <laughs> which, <laughs> about whether they piss you off or not, or whether or not you like them. 
You know, I've, I'm, most people know that the airlines, you know, if if they consider you a quote unquote high value customer, they'll they treat you a lot differently than just the average person who buys a ticket and you know flies in coach. They they do know how to provide good customer service when they want to, but they a lot of them have just taken the attitude that people have very limited choices, and even though they might get angry and swear that they'll never fly that airline again, that when they next time they go to buy a ticket. They look at their options and they're like, oh, wow, there really aren't much options. Maybe I could fly this other airline and pay a lot more and deal with an inconvenient connection. But, you know, as much as they, they you know, sometimes airline mergers are necessary in order, you know, if a, if a, if a company is, you know, circling the drain <laughs> on the verge of, of going under, you know, sometimes it's necessary. But I, I think it's, you know, one of the things we want our regulators to do that is their job is to make Which sure that when, when, I, when two big, you know, companies decide to merge, that it actually is going to benefit the, uh, the industry and not just a bunch of, you know, wealthy shareholders. Yeah, one of the... So we've, in case anyone was wondering what our two topics <laughs> of the day are, uh, it seems to be what is a libertarian <laughs> and probably... We'll get to Emmanuel Macron, hey, Macron. the the French election, uh, what will its consequences be, and uh, what are the sometimes wildly contradictory libertarian responses to the French election? Well, and who is Macron? I mean, it's it's. I mean, is he? I mean, I, I, the the media just has been describing him as a a social progressive and a centrist. But I think, especially from our American, you know, point of view, you know, the, the, the nuances of French uh, political parties and exactly what they're for and against is something that is probably not that well understood by most, you know, Americans, unless they really follow French politics yeah. and know a lot about France. Well, let's, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a moment, because I have a full battery of things to say about Macron, <laughs> oh, okay. about current perceptions of him. I'll bet you do. Uh but I want to get back to the sort of the what is libertarian thing and the statement of principles. Um, one of the things that I really love about libertarians, libertarianism and the libertarian party is that from my perspective, uh, you've got sort of core philosophies, core principles, uh, a lot of them from different places. You know, you've got the statement of principles of the party, but also like a number of libertarian philosophers going back any number of decades or centuries. Um, the real difference, you know, people, people don't know what to think when they think of libertarians in part, because there's a tremendous amount of ideological diversity and policy preference diversity within self self-described libertarian circles. And that is a consequence of, I think, having a really intense core philosophy instead of a core policy platform and different individual libertarians disagreeing with each other on how to apply those libertarian principles to practical reality. Uh, some people who come from the right will accept libertarian principles to some degree or another, but they choose to apply it uh, almost exclusively to the economic sphere mm -hmm. and less so to the social sphere. People who come from the left, as we do, tend to apply the libertarian philosophy very, you know, very enthusiastically to the social sphere. 
uh, but with a little more hesitance and and with more, you know, sort of pushback in the economic sphere. Uh, some people, like the party as a whole, has taken a very strong stance applying those principles to things like to foreign policy by encouraging free trade of goods, services, and people. Free movement of people across borders is a major part of the Libertarian Party platform. And yet, in this age of Trump, we see a lot of libertarians moving in the opposite direction, you know, getting behind Trump's literal and figurative walls, you know, who they don't want to apply libertarian principles beyond a nation's borders. Well, I always say that authoritarianism is kind of like candy. You know, every, even people who consider themselves hardcore libertarians or they're always, there's always a, there's everyone has something they want to force other people to do just because they they just think it's for whatever reasons every right, it's for every, the best. everybody has something that they're like whether it's you know parking where you're not supposed to or or uh, you know having sex with in a way that they don't find appropriate everyone has something that they just don't like that they want the government to ban we've all we've all sort of got something deep down that we that we want to coerce other people into going along with with our version of it. Now, some of them are pretty universal, like, you know, like robbery and murder and stuff like that, that we all consider, you know, fairly bad, you know, the, (laughs) the big items and the, in the 10 commandments. But then there's other stuff like blasphemy (laughs) that people might be in favor of, you know, libertarian free market, whatever, but don't you dare say this about, you know, something that I consider sacred. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, and I, I think depending on where you come from, you there's always that that something that's kind of going to draw you to that. So if you're coming from the right, you know, it's those social things, you know, the social conservative it, things like religion and uh, like, you know, like legislated morality. And from the left, it's the it's all the it's all the, the free toys that the government gives us. <laughs> Right. Well, and this is not that not that food stamps are toys, but you know what I mean. I mean the the the, the benefits, things that you know we need, but maybe the government is doing a little too much. <laughs> yeah, that's the right. I think you're right that authoritarianism is like candy that you just they just offer that one, and you're like, ah, <laughs> uh, I just want to cheat. Just give me the one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and. And that tends to suck people in. And right now, for a lot of libertarians, that thing that they choose to cheat on, as it were, that place where they're really willing to to just be like, you know what, you know, fuck freedom, fuck liberty, is, are we, a, are we, fuck those people, specifically. <laughs> yeah, is the border. Uh, and it's nuts, because it's, uh, you know, there are, We'll talk about this more when we talk about Macron. I have more things to say <laughs> in a moment. But uh, one of the best descriptions, I will say this about, about libertarianism, as I, I feel like we're sort of wrapping up on the thing. Um, one of the things that, uh, that Larry Sharp said and that Karen Ann said that I think is a really wonderful description about libertarianism is that libertarianism is like a train. It's always moving in one direction. It's moving in the direction of absolute freedom, absolute liberty. 
and anyone can get on the train, different people are going to get off the train at different points. For some people, for people who consider themselves to be classical liberals, meaning fiscally conservative, socially liberal, hearkening back to the liberals of the 1800s, you know, people who are classical liberals, they're, they're going to want to move in that direction of freedom and liberty until we start talking about the real public goods like education, healthcare, uh, you know, which isn't really public in this country, but that's a whole separate conversation. Well, it depends um, <laughs> for certain right. categories of people. So, is. so education, healthcare, the military, there are a number of areas where those classical liberals are going to say, you know what? I'm going to get off the train here. I've accomplished what I want. We've made the market more free. We've made people more free. But here are a bunch of categories of things that I think the government really should actively do. So I'm going to get off the train here. And, and for people to join the Libertarian Party, to fight for that, and then, and then once that's achieved, to say, I'm going to get off the train here, that's totally fine. You know, we would love it if, if people did that more. Uh, the, the sort of center, the core of Libertarian Party members will tell you that the principal role of government is to defend our freedoms, uh, to, to use force when necessary to, uh, to prevent or deter or gain recompense for you know, theft, uh, assault, murder, robbery, places where people violate other people's rights. To basically be a referee. Right, to be a referee. To guarantee information, you know, real information in the marketplace. But that's it. But that's the only purpose of government. Uh, and once that's achieved, they'll get off the train. They'll say, you know what? This is, this is enough. If the government is super minimal. It's only preventing people from hurting each other. That's what I want. Whereas the anarcho-capitalists... You know, the real... What's an, what's an anarcho-capitalist? Anarcho-capitalists. <laughs> they believe that the government should just go away and that the free market and the good of humankind will solve all these problems. Not... It's important to note that these people do not want or believe that people will be dying in the streets if we don't have government. What they believe will happen, what they want to happen, is that we'll all just help our neighbors voluntarily. Right. Uh, those people are going to take the train all the way down. And, you know, something like that, I mean, pardon me, <clears throat> I need to cough for a moment, but the, the voluntary aspect of it, I, you know, it's, I mean, it, it, there's evidence all around that it works on, a, the, but the, on, a, on smaller scales. I have a hard time kind of imagining people voluntarily, you know, paying a, like a tithe to the federal government if they didn't have to. I think the the, for, the more detached you are from the benefit that you're getting, the less you feel like ponying up for it. If I, I think it's one thing to ask people to volunteer for their local, you know, fire department <laughs> that's going to help protect their own community. But something, you know, in another state or, uh, or something that's more distant, in some ways that could be a good thing, like, like a war. <laughs> but I think there's... You know, the, the, the whole, I, I love the idea of everything being voluntary. I just, I, 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 I can't, maybe it's just my own lack of imagination, but it's hard for me to just imagine how that would work perfectly. So <laughs> unless there's some just like magical source of money that comes so, out of um, nowhere. Karen Ann, uh, Karen Ann Harlos 
who's a who's a great libertarian activist. She does a lot of button making. She mm-hmm. posts on Facebook a lot about <laughs> making buttons yeah. as a way to calm herself. You know, as a sort of therapeutic experience for mm-hmm. her, uh, or meditational experience. And one of the buttons she brought to the state, you know, the the pseudo convention was one that said Rothbard's button, and that's a <laughs> that was a joke about Murray Rothbard, who is a libertarian, you know, sort of philosopher, economic philosopher, who who said if he could press a button that would make the state disappear instantly, he would. And I have this button now. Obviously, I don't have the literal button, but I have the button that says Rothbard's button. And I've been thinking about it a lot. And and I think this says a lot about me and my priorities. That, uh-huh. that if I had Rothbard's button, I've been thinking a lot about like what would the consequences be of pushing it. And my first thought is, well, all those things just wouldn't go, wouldn't just go away. If the state just ceased to exist... Uh, I think there'd be a lot more bake sales for the homeless. Hmm. Like, I think that people really would get out of their homes and take action and help each other out. That we don't need the state to but solve poverty. Are, aren't people already doing that? I mean, do you think people, if we didn't have the government providing... I think if we didn't have the government, people would do it more. Hmm. Uh I think if we had... Would it be enough is, to compensate for, you know... Well, I don't know. So my, my thought was, if I could press that button, I might, but only on the condition that it eliminates not just the state, meaning the United States, but the state, meaning all states. Because the thing that really gets me about the anarcho-capitalists, the area where I disagree with them most fervently is security. I'm a mm. big believer in free trade, free movement, people moving across borders, living wherever the wherever they want. Right. But I do think that security is the number one purpose of having a state. And one of my problems, one of the areas where I actually tend to disagree with libertarians and foreign policy is that I I do actually believe in a more vigorous engaged and sometimes aggressive foreign policy simply because I think the cat's out of the bag. I I think that in order, in order for all of us in the United States to be safe, I think the United States needs to maintain its active leadership role in the world. And I do think that's really important. Um, Obviously there are other things. There's a, right. There's a difference between, would I press the Rothbard button and what would I do if I were president? If I were president, it would mostly be moderate things. Mm-hmm. If I were like if I were elected president of the United States tomorrow, given that I'm not constitutionally uh, able because I'm not old enough. Yeah, you're in the next cycle you will be. Right. If I were uh Probably a lot of what I would do is try to do a lot of moderate compromises between Democrats and Republicans to get things done. I would not, as one anarchist presidential candidate said, immediately dissolve the government of the United States. I would I would try to apply common sense, moderate policy solutions to current government problems. But at heart, I do 
I do believe in a more voluntary society and my ideal society is one that is voluntary. Um, I mean, yeah. And I, and I agree with you in the sense that if that were possible, if that would work in a, in a huge nation like the United States, obviously I think everyone would rather it be voluntary, you know, if, but if we could pay for all the things that we really need, the question is, you know, how much of the federal budget is stuff that we absolutely need. That's actually, you know, going to benefit people that isn't just, you know, pork and fat and, you know, excess oh, bureaucracy. Yeah. Cause the thing that, I mean, the thing mm. of the guy, I mean, I've, I've never been like some sort of anti-government, the government is evil type of person, but there's a lot of needless bureaucracy and, and silly, like rules are the rules kind of enforcement, you know, laws that are, you know, it's the law because it's the law. And, you know, it's just like we forgot why we had that law in the first place, but we still enforce it because the rules are the rules yeah. and you shouldn't question it because questioning the law is unpatriotic. And well, that was that was one of Larry Sharp's great riffs was like, you know, the government is a lot like parents. Why is this? <laughs> why is this the rule? Because I, I said, said so. so. Exactly. You know, because I said so is uh may work for parents but when it comes to the government it's a pretty dumb rule uh just enforce whatever's there because i said so because it's the law you know a thing is the law because it's the law um well and i or you have to do it because i have to do it and if i have to follow the rule so do i mean you hear that so much about about a lot of things it's like well, I've got to do it, and if I have to do it, then you should have to do it too. And no, and as opposed to actually questioning, well, why? Why do we actually have this law? Who is it? Who is it benefiting? Who is? Um, what's what is what is the real goal that it's trying to accomplish? I feel like perpetual, other than just helping, you know, being a self-perpetuating machine. I feel like in this segment we've probably confused people more than we've clarified what a libertarian is. I would say this as we go as I go off on my rant or as <laughs> rambling diatribe. If, if you're wondering what a libertarian is, ask yourself this. Do I fundamentally believe that people should be allowed to live their own lives without molestation? Definitely assuming without molestation. Oof. Well, People should be allowed to live their lives without the intrusion of others so long as they're not hurting other people or taking other people's stuff. Do you believe uh, that the government as it currently exists is too big, does too much, does those things inefficiently? Or even maybe that it doesn't do enough things, but it still does those things too inefficiently. Do you want it to get sort of slim and trim and good at what it does, then you might be a libertarian. And one of the great things about the libertarian party and about libertarian circles is that really all it takes to be a libertarian for good and bad is to identify yourself as one. So if you believe that people should be allowed to live their own lives, as long as they're not hurting others, if you believe that the government as it currently exists can be changed, can be reformed to do things in a better, more efficient way, then you are as valid a libertarian as many members of the Libertarian Party and many self-described libertarians. And I would then challenge you to do some Googling, get some Kindle books, <laughs> do some reading, read 
you so, know, read people like David Boaz, who I think is really good. So, Ben, uh, one of the um, questions I hear a lot from people who are sort of curious about what libertarianism is all about, or is all about <clears throat> but are a little bit reluctant to really get on the train is libertarianism sounds really selfish. You know, well, you just want to be, a, it's sort of like you're like, it's sort of, and, and kind of immature in a way. It's like, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to do what your mommy or your parents, you know, say, because <laughs> you don't want to follow the rules. You just, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's selfish. You don't want to pay your taxes. You don't want to contribute to society. And I think that the whole voluntarism argument, you know, it, in order in order for people to really take it seriously, you have to put your money where your mouth is. And that's why I think it's very important for, you know, people like us to not just talk about it and, and talk about what we want to get rid of and what we want to eliminate, but actually what we want to build and actually put in the effort yeah. to actually build these things. So if we're saying, well, the government isn't doing this right and someone else should be doing it differently, we've actually got to do that. We've got to actually build that and, and, and demonstrate no, that there are alternatives. I agree. Well, this is one of the funny areas where libertarians tend to eat each other alive is that there, there really are objectivists within the libertarian world People who really do there there are people who really do believe that we deserve what we get and that if if you're poor if you're underprivileged it's a term that we don't really <laughs> use anymore now oh yeah um if you're if you're suffering there are people who believe that you have somehow earned it personal responsibility yeah most <laughs> most libertarians most libertarians I think would say, no, that's not really us. People do get shafted all the time, but instead of forcing me to pay the government to pay you to help resolve that problem, just ask me and I'll do it. And there, there is one of the problems with the Libertarian Party that we've talked about a lot uh, in in Libertarian Party meetings is that we need to go out there and do more that is proactive. We need, as a party, to go feed the homeless. Mm -hmm. We need, as a party, to adopt some highways. We need to be seen visibly, you know, helping people improve themselves in a voluntary way. And I think a lot of us do walk that walk, not necessarily from within the trappings of being representatives of the Libertarian Party. But I think... That is something where most libertarians are really like, no, no, I don't just want to be left alone. I want other people to be allowed to be left alone, but I'm not going to be one of them. I'm going to do the helping, which is why well, I think sure. that would work. And then, like I said, what I keep coming back to is the issue with that is that that kind of can work on a local level, but is it scalable? And what about communities that are where, where almost where the majority of people are, are poor or can't, you know, don't have the resources. You know, what do we do about places, people who are, you know, members of communities that are underrepresented or that are, are marginalized, that don't have the political clout to, you know, organize themselves and really get, you know, I mean, because you can say take, it, it, it sort of sounds like, oh, well, you should take care of your own, which we do. But as, hmm. as a society, as as America, as this bigger community of, you know, 300 plus million people, how do, how do we 
you know, how do we keep that cohesiveness and not just turn into a bunch of, you know, provincials who are just looking after our own tribe? <laughs> but, well, that, you know, a sense of, you know, yeah, I, I mean, Nick Gillespie, I, I heard him uh, talking about uh, JFK's, you know, famous uh, uh, inaugural, you know, quote where he says, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask not what, what your, your country, country can, can do, do for you. you. But what you can do for your country. Which is basically anathema to libertarian ideas. You should, it's the other way around. It's not what, you know, a libertarian would say, what do you mean you do, you do for your country? The country, you should, you know, we don't exist to serve the state. But I mean, what he was talking about is this kind of unselfish sense of, you know, community that we all take care of each other. But at, at the same time, it can kind of come across as, you know, you know, we should all, you know, put ourselves second to the. Except I think that actually I think that statement actually is very libertarian. Mm -hmm. If you divorce country from state, if you put the word community in. Yes. Instead of country, ask not what your community or your country or your state can do for you but what you can do for your community for your country for your neighbors and when you frame without it, necessarily doing it through the state just what can you do and that's as as larry sharp was talking about it's it's largely you know you know whether people you know buy into it or not is is kind of how you frame it you know so often libertarians frame their their ideas as based on what we're against as opposed to what we're for Right, he talked a lot about the A word that that there yes. the A word abolish that there are libertarians who who keep talking about wanting to abolish things, and, and if you abolish enough stuff, it starts to sound like we're living in Mad Max. You know, it's like well, and I, well, in my response, also, I mean, I leaned over to you and I said that that I like I like reorganization mm -hmm. as a word. Like, if I were president of the United States, the first thing I would do is commence a reorganization of federal departments. My highest priority, the first thing I would do, would be to give the secretaries of the various departments a wide array of flexibility to reduce redundancies. <laughs> the first thing we can do is is cut out inefficiency. Before we even talk about how can we how can we make the programs more effective, first thing we can talk about is why are there nineteen intelligence agencies? <laughs> why? You know, why do we have all these different departments doing all these different things? Why do we have separate uh, separate departments for... Uh, why is there a small business administration, a commerce department, a labor department, uh, you know, a treasury secretary? Why are there all of these departments with incredibly overlapping jobs? You know, we can move government agencies departments, directorships around to make sure that every aspect of the federal executive government is that they're all under the appropriate umbrellas. And then by eliminating redundancy, by merging agencies, merging sub-departments, we could save tremendous amounts of money. That would be my highest priority. Um, that's that's uh <laughs> you're getting a little wonky getting though. a little yeah. <laughs> i've got a whole plan if anyone wants to know my whole and a lot plan of libertarians like government. that's that's a lot of government planning it sounds like but yes so yeah, it's a lot of government planning but it would make government smaller so you are definitely not more effective you are definitely not an, an ancap <laughs>
No. <laughs> no. Well, and, and again, it's a... it's a... And, and neither... I mean, I... To be honest, I mean, it's... it's Maybe this discussion does go a little bit off the rails, but I, I do struggle to kind of define myself and to come up with a good label that defines what I'm... You know, what, what category I belong in. I mean, for the longest time, I considered myself a progressive and a liberal, but... A lot of people on the left, just frankly to me, don't seem all that progressive anymore. They seem regressive, like they're going in the opposite direction. Especially when it comes to, like, uh, you know, freedom of speech. Well, <laughs> and this may be a, this may be a good place, actually, to transition to Macron, mm-hmm. Le Pen, and the and the wildly different and contradictory responses to them from both within and without the sort of libertarian voices. Yeah. What? How are we doing on time, Chris? Mm, you got, um... Oh, Just curious. We've been going and going. Yeah, you've been going for 48 minutes. Okay. Well, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Ben to give his lecture about the French election. Things to Spoiler know... Spoiler alert. Things to know <laughs> about Emmanuel Macron. So the... So the results have already come in, and Emmanuel Macron, uh, the 30-something-year-old, uh, fresh-faced leader of a new political party called En March, so has just, been elected president of France. Just a little background. It's like, how did we get to this point? What is, how did we get where, to Wasn't there just a French election a couple of weeks ago? Yep. Okay, so the Fifth Republic, which is the French government post-1950s, uh, establishes the president of France uh, simultaneously has both more and less power than the American president. They have, on the one hand, complete control, the president, over foreign affairs. Uh, they don't have to go to their parliament for declarations of war or treaty ratification. They can just do it themselves. Uh, on the other hand, most sort of internal government functions are handled by the parliament. They appoint... The ministers, they appoint the prime minister, the president does, uh, but they don't do a lot of those day-to-days. Traditionally, since the establishment of the Fifth Republic, uh, the presidency has alternated between the center-left, what is uh, the sort of mainstream center-left and mainstream center-right parties, which are currently the socialists and the republicans. Uh, what are they, how do you, how do you, they're called the republicans, you say? Yes, Le Republican. Thank you. Um, so, the Socialists and the Republicans. Uh, they are the center-left and center-right parties. Famous, uh, famous French presidents of recent days you may have heard of. Uh, Jacques Chirac, Nicolas Sarkozy. They are from the center-right. Uh, Francois Hollande, the current president, is from the center-left uh, socialists. In the last... You know, during this last term, you know, Hollande, the socialist, center-left mainstream, was swept into power uh, by sort of an Obama-like avalanche of millennial and immigrant voters, uh, you know, by sort of the young and the hip, uh, people wanting to bring France more into mainstream Europe, uh, and... For the last number of years, as has been his presidential term, he has taken all of that goodwill, all of that wellspring of support, 
and just set it on fire. Uh, this presidency has been a disaster. <coughs> and the mainstream left in France has almost completely fallen apart. Uh, Macron started his career, his relatively short career, as a political consultant. And he started, like most of these sort of Gen X millennial types, you know, he started as a member of the Socialist Party because he's a socially liberal, mainstream, well-educated young Frenchman. So that's where he got his start. He has only ever held one government office, and that was Minister of the Economy. And that was for one year under Francois Hollande. What happened there is that Hollande tried to get a lot of you know socialist left-wing reforms to the previously right-wing government done. He tried to reform the economy, and a lot of things started to go south real, real fast. Macron was brought in as a new minister of the economy with the goal of reforming the economy again back in the other direction to bring it to a more free marketplace, uh, more like what the conservatives had done, but, but sort of in a broader sense, just sort of less government intrusion, less government involvement. You know, Macron's job was, as people would say in America, to unleash the market. <laughs> and he had one year in this position and he left. He left because he realized that as a member of the socialist government, there was no way he could actually get real long-term reforms done. So he left the socialist party. He left his position as minister of the economy, and he spent a couple of years building up his political war chest and his personal finances, working for the Rothschild Investment Bank, which is the biggest investment bank in France. A lot of people have labeled him, you know, a banker, for doing this, uh, it doesn't seem to me to be that different from what many young people in his situation would do. You know, he's the he's the kind of guy who, you know, if he were an American, he he graduated from the equivalent of Harvard, you know, with a degree in public policy. So he went to work for the equivalent of Wall Street because a lot of people do. He did that for two years with the intention, it seems, simply to build connections in the business community, uh, to match those connections he'd already built in the political community, to raise money for himself so that he could live comfortably, and to set himself up to be able to run a campaign. So he established a new political party called En March, and their goal is to be a centrist political movement uh, that is sort of center-right, on economic issues and center left on social issues. <coughs> Gee, what does that sound like? Right. Um, <laughs> and the one area where they are extreme is that they are vehemently pro EU and pro Europe. They believe, you know, Macron and his En March people believe very firmly in the free movement of people across borders, in free markets of goods and services. What does that sound like? Um, I originally became attracted to Macron because I saw this and I said to myself, he's basically a libertarian. He doesn't speak in platitudes. He's very, he tends to be very vague. <coughs> he's gotten a lot of flack for trying to be sort of 
for trying to be everything to all people. You're trying to be a political candidate who appealed to the left and the right and the center and whatever. But at his heart, his political policy preferences really do line up with the same things that libertarians want. A freer market, uh, internally and externally, a foreign policy that is one of peace and engagement, uh, a socially tolerant culture and society. Um, as I said, the French left has fallen apart. Francois Hollande, with his economic missteps that have done bad things for France, and his sort of interesting cultural and social missteps, which is to say, um, <clears throat> as terrorist attacks began to occur in France with alarming frequency in the last few years, Alain's response was to basically flip off all those Muslim and, and immigrant voters who had voted for him and to instead institute draconian anti-terror policies that really cracked down not on terrorists, but on poor Muslims. And all the goodwill he had went out the window. And as we have seen in other places, when a left-wing candidate starts appealing to right-wing uh, cultural desires. We see this over and over again. Instead of gaining support, which is what they want, most of what they do, most of what they end up doing is mainstreaming those conservative cultural values well, in a way that throws more support to the right. Well, and it just smacks of knee-jerk, you know, pandering to fear. Yeah. And yeah, it's... Right, he couldn't stand and, up on his own convictions. And, and the people who would actually like approve of these things are not, you know, inclined they're not to support vote for someone him anyway. like him anyway. So it does seem like a pretty, so, not very shrewd political move. So the way the French election works is they have two rounds. Uh, they have one round that is basically an open jungle primary where people from, in order to run for president, you have to have, I think, 500 signatures from elected or sitting mm -hmm. politicians of some kind. Whatever. <laughs> they have this jungle primary where anyone who has a party to their name runs. They all run at the same time. And the, and assuming that no candidate gets 50%, uh, the top two end up in a runoff. And that's what's happened here. In every previous elect, in most, so first of all, in most previous elections in the Fifth Republic, this has come down inevitably to the socialist candidate and the Republican candidate the mainstream center-left, and the mainstream center-right. Mm -hmm. In a few cases, it has been the mainstream center-left and someone more extreme on the right, or mainstream center-right and someone more extreme on the right. In this case, it looked like it was going to be a toss-up. Uh, the mainstream center-left candidate, Benoit Hamon, had completely fallen apart. His association with Francois Hollande meant that in the end, he only got 6% of the vote. And he knew that, so he wasn't even considered serious. It really came down to four candidates. The mainstream center-right Le Republican candidate, uh, Fillon, Francois Fillon, who was mired in scandal, uh, nepotism, money stuff, all sorts of things. Macron, who is this untested libertarian-leaning moderate, leading and March, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is a literal communist. But it's already May. Uh, 
Hmm? Sorry, bad pun. You said in March. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, a literal communist. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Marine Le Pen, who has tried to move heaven and earth to make people forget that her father was a Holocaust-denying neo-Nazi. And that she took over a functionally neo-Nazi political party. Um, in the end, Macron and Le Pen ended up the candidates. Both of them third party, in quotes, candidates. You know, third party independent candidates. Neither of them affiliated with mainstream parties. That would be like if Donald Trump had run as the Reform Party candidate, something he talked about doing in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, Gary Johnson and he had ended up as the final two. Like, imagine if two third party candidates ended up being the only senior, the only serious candidates in American politics. You had to choose between them. Fascinating. Um, (laughs) Is that supposed to be a nightmare? In the in the last two weeks, American media has tried really, really hard to apply the American traditional left right dichotomy to this. They have labeled Marine Le Pen a far-right authoritarian, far-right populist nationalist, far-right neo-Nazi. And Macron has been labeled the center-left candidate, as opposed to the centrist candidate, which is how he describes himself. Um, And this especially got muddy in the last week as Barack Obama publicly endorsed Macron And Trump was seen to quietly, privately endorse Le Pen, who, like Trump, has a number (laughs) of dark, insidious connections to Vladimir Putin. I believe what he said is she, quote unquote, seems stronger on borders. Um, (laughs) Being strong on borders is like the the most important thing he thinks about when it comes to French, you know, politics. So people people have looked at this as as a do-over. Or, a, or a, maybe a better comparison would be, it would be like Obama 2008 versus Trump 2016. And there's some truth to that. You know, the rhetoric of Obama 2008 and Macron 2016 is, can be very similar. The rhetoric of Le well, Pen 2016 and Trump 2016 can be very similar. It would be like, I don't know, if, if Gary Johnson ran against Ivanka Trump. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine that. <laughs> so, uh, but here's the thing. Right, but so from an optics perspective, young idealist who came from the left yeah, maybe versus a far-right, more experienced <laughs> female politician. Um, and what I see as being interesting is, you know, Macron has now won. He'll be the first president of France in the fifth Republic to not be a member of either the socialist or Le Republican. Um, here's what I find really interesting. I see on Facebook, cause of course Facebook and Twitter, a lot of Democrats saying, whoo, thank God, like our candidate won," and libertarians mystifyingly being like, damn, Le Pen lost. Well, sure. Because I mean because it's, you know, Le Pen is is framed as the French Trump and Macron as being, you know, the, the French uh, Obama or the the left, the quote unquote the the one that's more left of her. Right. So. Well, I think the I think the 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 comparison to Obama 2008 is good because of how 
Macron makes people feel, like what the well, optics are compared to... And a lot of libertarians yeah. were, you know, cheerleading Brexit. And they see, you know, which the ultimate goal of it's to break up the EU. Well, then Le Pen, she's your candidate. Right. Except here's the thing. As I pointed out to one of the Democrats hooraying today, <laughs> Macron is the candidate who wants to cut 120,000 government jobs, uh, who wants to liberalize the markets, have more competition. Uh, you know, he wants to he wants to lower taxes, cut regulations unleash the economy in ways that in America libertarians and conservatives would talk about. Whereas Le Pen wanted to reduce the, the mandatory number of hours in the work week. She wanted to increase the minimum wage, increase the social safety net for the working whites of France uh, in a way that is more socialist than Macron. Like, Le Pen was really marrying economic socialism with cultural conservatism and and a campaign of fear against Muslims, against foreigners, whereas Macron was trying to marry a free market libertarian approach to economics with modern social progressivism in a way uh, that actually really spoke to me. Like, there's a degree to which when I see a lot of Democrats saying, like, yay, Macron, he's our guy, my response is like, no, he's not your guy, he's my guy. I knew about him way before you did. I'm an OG American Macron <laughs> Facebook supporter mm-hmm. because he really does speak to my policy preferences and to what I think are the dominant policy preferences of the libertarians, whereas, like, Trump... Trump ran a similar campaign to Le Pen in that he ran as an economic populist, which really means in a lot of ways, economic, like traditional left wing economic policies. The effect of which is that he hasn't been able to get any of that done because he may be Trump sold himself to a lot of the white working class as someone who is both culturally conservative and pretty economically left-wing, but he's the leader of an economically right-wing party. I wouldn't say economically libertarian, because there are important differences, Mm -hmm. but an establishment conservative uh, economic platform that he now has to work with and work through. And I think that's a big source of the Trump administration's complete inability to get anything done is they don't want to cut regulations and, you know, cut this, cut that and, and, you know, make the economy more free. They don't want to make the economy more free. They want to make it more closed. Trump wants the economy more to be more controlled, not less controlled, more socialist, not less socialist, but in a way that only benefits his voters, his supporters instead of benefiting everyone. Hmm. Um, but he can't get any of that done because he's the leader of a political party <laughs> that, do- that doesn't want that at all. Le Pen, in a way, was running a more honest campaign. As the leader of her own party, she was able to say, no, no, there, we will reduce the number of hours a week that you work. You will get more money from the government. Taxes will be higher on the rich. Taxes will be higher on imports. We will close the borders so that people have to buy stuff 
from their neighborhood stores instead of from Amazon, you know, across things that are made across the sea. We want a more government involved economy. And she was able to run on that with utter honesty. And if she had been elected, she possibly could have really gone for that in a way that Trump never could have because he's the leader of a political party whose separate economic platform is anathema to his. Hmm. But the thing about Macron, I don't begrudge liberal left-wing types celebrating Macron's victory. It ought to be a celebration. Left-wing, right-wing, libertarian, anyone except fascists <laughs> should be celebrating the Macron one. Well, if you're not a fascist, you ought to be an anti-fascist, right? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, well, and here's the here's the thing I'll say about Brexit and the EU. I have really grown to love, as listeners of this show will understand, uh, the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe, or ALDI. The ALDI party and the ALDI group in the European Parliament, and their leaders, Hans van Ballen and Guy Verhofstad, uh, yeah, of course. I'm very yes. We all know who they are. What I like, right? <laughs> what I like about them is that they are huge supporters of the European Union, with the caveat that they want it to be drastically reformed, to be more democratic, more transparent, more free, more open. They are hoping that end March, which is currently unaffiliated on the European scale, they're hoping that end March will join the Aldi party. Because they share the same strong feelings. Uh, they believe in a Europe that is socially tolerant and respectful and fiscally free and open. Um, and that works together. And here's that like a lot of libertarians don't like the EU and don't like the UN and don't like NATO because what they don't like is the is the sacrifice of personal control to these nebulous multinational bureaucracies. And that is totally fair. But, as people have pointed out, a united Europe is in a better position to fight against fascism at home and abroad than a dissolved Europe. And the fact that the European Union is currently a bureaucratic nightmare doesn't mean that it has to be. It could be a government that is both strong and effective and also small and free, where people really do get to live their own lives uh, without burdensome overregulation, but where they don't necessarily have to stay within their own borders well that sounds that's, utopian but that's what that's the, whole, that's the dream of the eu right that's the dream of the eu economic freedom you know basically open borders here's the thing though the european people's party which is the mainstream center-right political party in the eu and the and the progressive alliance of socialists and democrats for europe which is the ludicrously named mainstream center-left political party in Europe, both of them stand for the status quo. Both of those European political parties, uh, they believe in the EU, but they believe in keeping it the way it is, which is to say uh, an undemocratic, totally opaque, bureaucratic nightmare. 
whereas the alliance of liberals and democrats for Europe, liberal in that case meaning classically liberal, they believe in radically reforming the EU to make it democratic, make it transparent, make it accountable, which is something that I think libertarians should really support. Uh, libertarians in America, when they worry about Europe, they tend to be pretty divided between the, the sort of pro-Brexit, anti-EU, and the anti-Brexit, pro-EU, who I think right now are the minority, and I might be their most vocal advocate. <laughs> um, that might be true. I that might been... be true. The thing is, so a lot of a lot of libertarians sort of glommed onto Le Pen the same way that a lot of American liberals glommed onto Macron. These American libertarians who glommed onto Le Pen did it because they hate that the EU is a bureaucratic nightmare, and that's all they know about Europe. All they know about Europe is what they see on TV, that there's violence and terrorism and a massive influx of refugees, and they... And that the EU is doing nothing, that the EU is incapable, that they, that they overregulate the European marketplace, that they overregulate the lives of European citizens, and that they are incapable of, of achieving any positive goal. Uh, and my response to those libertarians is, you don't have to be anti-EU because the EU, as it currently exists, sucks. You can be for making the European Union a better place. Making the European Union m more like what we libertarians want from the American government. Those libertarians in America who do not want to dissolve the federal government, they want a federal government that does what the Constitution says, that stays out of people's lives as much as possible, that ensures safety and security. That's what pro-EU politicians like Guy Verhofstadt, Hans van Ballen, and Emmanuel Macron, that's what they want. They want an EU that is able to secure its collective borders, that is able to defend itself against, let's say, Russia, hmm. uh, that is able that has the ability to to hold itself accountable to the voters through more direct elections through real transparency and that as a consequence will deregulate get out of the lives of people and cut that red tape out cuz they really are sort of a nightmare version of a possible US federal government that's what the EU is right now they are a parody of what the U.S. federal government is at its on its worst day. But you don't just because something is not working doesn't mean you have to throw it out. You can change it and make it work. In this case, at least, you could change it and make it work. And that's why, like, if you're a libertarian listening to this and your gut tells you that you wanted Le Pen and you didn't want Macron, read about Macron. Like, yes, he has a history in banking for two years. Yes, he worked for the socialist government for one year trying to get pro-free market reforms done from within that party. That's why he left, because he couldn't. He, domestically within France, the policies he wants are the, that, are the same that we want from our American politicians. 
And for the EU, he wants something more like our ideal of a federal government. So that's why I'm really excited that Macron won. Uh, it is, I think, a victory for liberty and a victory for freedom. Uh, and in general, as a Jewish person, I'll feel a little safer if I go to France well, knowing that he's the president of Le Pen. We will see, you know, how it all works out. I mean, he, I mean, the rub on him is, you know, he's young, he's, he's inexperienced and who knows what kind of coalition he's going to be will, able to form. It's, yep. it's one of those times where, you know, sort of like after Obama was elected and there's right, all, what this is he actually gonna, all this optimism, but what is he going to do? Well, hopefully um, he'll, you know, get, surround himself with good people and learn, try to avoid some real, of the mistakes of people who have been in similar circumstances. Well, and the I mean, real, the real test is immediate. Mm-hmm. The first test is between now and June. He has to, now that he's won the presidency, he has to take the political party he founded and make it real because they're going to have their parliamentary elections in June. Mm-hmm. And if he wants to get anything done, he's going to need at least a plurality in the parliament so he can build a coalition of the willing to make government work. Right. Well, you know, the other <laughs> last night I, I was watching a, a Bill Maher show on HBO and he had John Kasich on as a, as his first guest. And, John, yeah, John Kasich said something uh, was kind of interesting uh, about uh, Trump. He said, "I want him to to succeed the same way I want the the pilot of my plane to succeed." Huh. And then later on, another guest, you know, referring to what Kasich had said, said, "Well, yeah, except you know, the pilot he's trained to fly the he or she is trained to fly the airplane." <laughs> so. Well, it's like a, it's like we're all captive on a plane that is being piloted by a kindergartner. Exactly. We really hope that some combination of the co-pilot, the autopilot, something is going to make sure that we all land safe and alive. Uh, so we hope he succeeds the same way we hope that kindergartner uh, succeeds at not crashing the plane by letting the co-pilot and the autopilot do the work. Well... Hopefully uh, he knows a little something about flying the plane and <laughs> Macron. And and if he and yeah. if he's not, he he won't be afraid to ask for a little bit of guidance from uh, yeah air traffic that's, control. You know, <laughs> the European political as I parties. Extend my metaphors as <laughs> to Macron. We really need to put this to bed. But <laughs> yeah, well, and I hope I hope that he gets the right people because uh, Valls, the former socialist prime minister, was one of the first people to endorse Macron in the presidential race. Uh And Macron uh, very conspicuously chose not to sort of publicly accept. He actually like, like he was like, I appreciate it, but maybe not buddy. Well, if you're not sick of us yet, we're going to go away anyway. Okay. Chris, uh, cue up uh, Macarena by Los Del Rios, please. Anyway, I'm Lelius Rose. And I'm Ben Phelps. And as you know, we are the most precious Precious of snowflakes. We are the precious snowflakes. Yes, thank you. And good night. Good night.